storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, day 10 of the 2024 Australian Open, now officially in the books. It was the opening day of quarterfinal play in both the men's and women's singles draws. It certainly did not disappoint. We got fascinating tennis littered throughout the day's matches, which, of course, I want to break down for all of you listeners here on today's show. It started with some serious funkiness. Was it the best tennis I have ever seen from both Coco Goff or Marta Kostyuk in their quarterfinal bout? It certainly was not. Nevertheless, it speaks to the mental toughness, the tenacity 19-year-old Coco Goff has already developed thus far in her career that she was able to overcome what was, again, far from her best performance on the court, advanced to a second consecutive major semifinal, where, by the way, a U.S. Open final rematch awaits as she is going to take on Arena Sabalenka. Sabalenka into her sixth, let me say that again, sixth consecutive major semifinal. She joins an elite company of players in doing so. It was another, dare I say, dominant performance for the world number two straight set victory for her over Barbara Krachikova. She's the class of the field. She showed it once again. I'll break down what I mean by that statement on today's show. And then, of course, a couple of good men's matches as well. That's the closest, even though I know Fritz pushed Djokovic to five sets in the Australian Open in the past. That's the best, though, I have ever seen Taylor Fritz play world number one Novak Djokovic. And, of course, ultimately Djokovic able to pull away, earn a four-set victory. But those first two sets were fascinating. Maybe the highest level of tennis we have seen from Djokovic this tournament, certainly maybe the highest level we've seen from Fritz in his career. A lot to discuss as it relates to that one, even if in the end it was a fairly straightforward result for Novak. And then, of course, I got to talk about a guy who I haven't spoken much of at least as it relates to this major. And the reason is he hasn't given me much of a reason to do so. Yannick Sinner has cruised throughout this 2024 Australian Open, and he was certainly tested in his quarterfinal bout with world number five Andre Rublev, but it's another straight set victory for the Sid man, the 22-year-old advancing to the semifinals of this Australian Open, second major semifinal of his career to set up a blockbuster. Let me say that again. Blockbuster showdown with Novak Djokovic, given the three matches they played to end the 2023 season. So obviously, we got some headlines. We got some tennis to discuss here on today's show, and that's what I want to do for all of you tennis fans. Break down all four of our singles quarterfinals from day 10 of this event. Of course, the reason I'm able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, and we appreciate that support. It allows us to expand our coverage into so many different other things happening happening in the tennis world, including, of course, things happening at the collegiate level. And a friendly reminder to all of you, the symbolic, the ceremonial start to the 2024 college tennis season, it's happening this weekend. 15 of the best men's and women's team in the country hosting three other schools as all of them compete for a slot in the national indoor championships in February. We are going to be covering 20 of those regions across various Crack Rackets channels. Some of them going to be on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, but perhaps most encouragingly, most 
excitingly, a lot of our coverage is going to be on ESPN Plus right alongside of this Australian Open coverage. Again, we begin Friday on ESPN Plus. We'll be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. We'll be on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel Friday, Saturday, Sunday as well. So if you haven't already, go subscribe to the YouTube channel. Not only can you watch our college tennis coverage, you can watch these mini break podcasts now as they're going to be posted up there at least three, four times a week. And again, we'd really appreciate that. Always helps us negotiations with sponsors when we can show them an elevated subscriber count. Uh, Of course, again, on the Great Shot podcast feed, we're going to be previewing all aspects of that kickoff weekend. So if you're less familiar with the college tennis world, less familiar with the scene, make sure you go check that content out. Of course, all of our Australian Open content moving forward going to be housed here on the Mini Break podcast. And if you've missed out on anything, make sure you catch up by checking out all the episodes, which you can find by scrolling down on your Mini Break podcast podcast feed wherever it is you listen to this show of course a shout out and thank you as well to the support we get from our friends at tennis point tennis point.com the promo code is cr15 for all of the latest and greatest products at the best prices in the tennis world tennis point.com the promo code is cr15 all right Let's talk these day 10 singles matches we got four good ones on our hand let's get funky to start the golf costume match was as competitive as I anticipated going in. It did not look at all what I anticipate, uh, like what I anticipated it would. And I think a statistic that screams why it perhaps did not look that way is because look at the unforced error count for each of these players. Marta Kostyuk, 56 unforced errors. Coco Goff, 51 for Goff, nine double faults to Kostyuk's eight. An extraordinarily erratic performance on serve. Uncharacteristic from Coco Goff, certainly uncharacteristic relative to what we've seen from her the rest of this 2024 season. She's now 10-0 and overall on the year, but she faced 14 breakpoint matches in this, comp- uh, in this event. For comparison, to date, uh, through the, excuse me, duration of the Auckland event, she faced 16 breakpoints. And to date in this tournament, she had faced 13 breakpoints, hadn't faced a breakpoint since round number two. She faced 14 of them in this match against Kostjuk. Obviously, the script of this one was funky as well. Kostyuk races out to this 5-1 lead where it wasn't just the Goff forehand breaking down, by the way, which was the typical script in her losses thus far in her career. It was everything. Backhand wasn't working. Serve was all over the place. Wasn't generating easy opportunities to move to the net. The springiness and, you know, again, depth of everything Kostyuk was throwing at her just seemed to throw the calibration off in the Coco Golf ground strokes. And again, it was a head-scratching performance from a player who, to that point of the event, had yet to drop a set, to that point of the season, had yet to drop a match. And she goes down 5-1, and you think, all right, this one's over. Now, credit to Goff. She gets a break back. She gets a hold. But you think to yourself, all right, this one's over. Not the case. All of a sudden, it's 5-all, and Marta Kostyuk is serving in the first set because Kostyuk gets erratic because her forehand shanking all over the map because the backhand's a little low now and it's hitting the net tape or landing in the net and, you know, the slices are kind of leaking on her into the alleys and now the drop shots are kind of hanging and Goff is getting a little bit more comfortable playing the backhand line, just keeping the ball in play, allowing you to make the errors. All of a sudden, Goff breaks for 6-5 and you think to yourself, all right, like... (laughs) 
sure, she's going to escape. I guess so. And then Kostyuk breaks back, and all of a sudden we have this injury timeout, and everything. we're just able to stew in all of the funkiness, all of the errors that were that match. And again, 50, uh, what was the number? 56 unforced errors for Kostyuk, 51 unforced errors for Coco Goff. You look in set number one specifically, Kostyuk had 26 of her unforced errors. Goff had 24 of her unforced errors. It was the weirdest 7-6 set I've seen. Coco Goff ultimately able to prevail uh, 8-6 in the breaker. You know, again, credit to Kostyuk. She was able to fight back to extend that breaker. Goff was in the lead for just about the entirety of it. And Goff escapes with the opening set, as the better player oftentimes does when things are funky. And look, I know she's younger than Kostyuk. She's more experienced at this stage. It was not her first quarterfinal. It was for Marta Kostyuk at the slam level. It was the funkiness you would expect of a 19-year-old versus a 21-year-old. It was not the funkiness you would expect from the level uh, uh, from these two, given the level they had played to this point of the event. But you know, again, credit to Marta Kostyuk. She's down a break pretty much the entirety of the second set. Able to break back for 2-3, down 4-2. Able to break back for 3-4. And you think, okay, maybe this is where she steadies the ship. Nope. Coco Goff breaks for 5-3, serves for the set. What happens in that instance? March Kostyuk connects on a couple of backhand returns. March Kostyuk shows off that line drive pace, the underlying physicality, which, by the way, even through the funkiness, you saw the speed of both of these players showed off at times, the well-rounded skill set of them trying to do all these different things, even if very rarely were all of them working at once. Kostyuk's able to grind her way back. Marta Kostyuk's able to force a breaker. All of a sudden, Marta Kostyuk wins that second set breaker, and we think we have a battle on our hands. Unfortunately, we kind of didn't. Coco Goff racing out to a 5-love third set lead. Kostyuk getting two games back and just given the course of that match, you thought there's got to be a third act here, right? We're going to see a third lead overcome. Not the case. Goff able to steady the ship. Goff able to get over the finish line. 7-6, uh, 6-7-6-2. Look, if you are a Coco Goff fan, you are trying, if you are Coco Goff, you're trying to erase this match from your memory. There is not a lot of positives to come out of this from Coco Goff, other than the fact that you cleared the mental hurdle. You're always in a slam, in a run to a slam title, going to have to win the match where you're not playing your best. I think even for Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer at the peaks of their powers, Rafa might be the exception because his intensity is always this high, so high that like, you don't even know if he's not playing his best. You can't think of the clear-cut example. I mean, of course you can if you really want to dig into it. But again, you're always going to have to win those matches where you're not playing your best. Find a way to grind through. Coco Goff did that at this quarterfinal. Now she gets the one where she gets to play freely. Now it's the winner-take-all match against Sabalenka, where, again, you just have less, less to lose because it's two of the best players in the world. And again, roll the balls out. Let's play some tennis I guess if the glass half full perspective, it wasn't the golf forehand that broke down in this match. Glass half empty perspective, it was the everything that broke down for Coco Goff in this match. You look across the match for Goff, I mentioned the 51 unforced errors, just 17 winners to Kostyuk's 39. Now, credit to Goff, she generated 22 break points for herself versus the 14 she faced, able to break nine times, 16 of 26 at the net. She was pretty solid when the opportunity did come to move forward. And 
by the way, how does she close out that opening set by moving forward on a center third approach shot where, again, given the errors that have come off of Kostyuk's racket, she kind of floats a passing shot in the center. Goff a good backhand volley. Kostyuk floats the lob response long. Like, she was bolder in the biggest moments, even through the unforced errors, trusted her game plan versus Acosta, who just felt like was always searching for something she could find a rhythm to do repetitively. And that was just, again, very rarely available. Now, she continued to fight, continued to show off things throughout the course of this match. But if I am being honest, this was not the greatest tennis. Over 100 unforced errors speaks to that fact, but it speaks to the resilience of Coco Goff that she's able to prevail. And now Goff's into her third semi in her career at the major. She's now made it at three of the four, making obviously U.S. Open last year. Roland Garros on her way back to the final, uh, to the final, excuse me, back in 2022. Now this Australian Open as well. It's a tremendous start that carries off of the momentum she obviously built through the last third of the season. You look for her since Wimbledon now 34-4 and overall. She's 10-0 and to start this year. And, you know, again, outside opponents, uh, against opponents ranked outside the top 20, she moves to 21-0 and since the end of Wimbledon last year. Obviously, last 52 weeks overall, she's 53-15. and She's won 78% uh, of her matches overall. It's pretty, it's like, again, like, it's pretty good against everyone. But to be undefeated against opponents ranked outside the top 20 during that stretch, to have her only losses come to two players, Iga and Pagula, it's pretty impressive stuff for someone who's still 19 years old. And courtesy of our friends Opta Ace, again, a couple of stats for you all. Coco Goff earns her 49th victory as a teenager at the majors. Since 1990, only Jennifer Capriati won more Grand Slam singles matches amongst American teenagers. Here's the top five, by the way, because this is quite the list. Capriati, obviously one of the best teenagers we've ever had. She won 50 matches. Goff's at 49. Serena won 49. How'd Serena Williams' career turn out? I think pretty good. Uh, Venus Williams, if that's your floor, pretty good floor to have, 43. And then Lindsey Davenport, who, by the way, if that's your floor, that's a Hall of Fame player too, 38 wins. So again, Coco Goff now tied Serena surpassed Venus, surpasses Davenport. She's chasing Capriati for the most American win since 1990 ever amongst an American teenager. Coco Goff, the second teenager this century to win her first 10 matches in a single calendar year after Justine Ennin did it in 2001. I mean, come on now. I mean, she's already a major champion. Probably already if her career ended tomorrow, she would at least be in the conversation, in that Hall of Fame conversation. Probably has to do a little bit more because she's still a little bit on the younger side, but has played a lot of tour-level matches. The The overall title count's not where it quite needs to be to be like, yep, surefire Hall of Famer. But again, she's 19 years old, and every indication, every pathway says Coco Goff is just one of the special ones we're gifted every so often by the tennis gods. Again, was it her best tennis? No, no one's going to accuse her of that. It's a massive victory for Coco Goff to advance to the quarterfinal, uh, excuse me, semifinals of this match, uh, of this event. That's how you say all those phrases together. Advance to the semifinals of this event. She's currently sitting at three in the live rankings, which is her career high. Obviously, on the flip side for Kostyuk, a little disappointing to go out in this particular fashion. You feel like you should have had that first set. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, 
third set was what it was, but you feel like that's a match where, given the level you saw from Goff, if Kostyuk raises her level even 15%, she is walking out of that match with a straight set victory. Kostyuk still, though, first quarterfinal of her career at the majors to get this sort of result to start her season. 21-year-old is up to number 28 now in the live rankings. We going to see her at all the big events. We're going to see her with a seed next to her name and a lot of them as well, just back on the path, back where she needs to be after, again, some serious volatility over the past couple of seasons. Uh, this is just exactly the kickstart Kostyuk needed to her 2024 campaign. And again, solid opening month uh, for Marta Kostyuk overall. Ends in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. I mean, certainly we. I think everyone was imagining Coco Goff was going to get to the semifinals. She was a tier one contender, top four player, held seed to get to this round. Probably the best part of her making it there is now we get to see the Sabalenka Goff rematch that we were all anticipating at the start of this event. And look again, Coco Goff did her part, dropped just one set to get here. Arena Sabalenka's played untouchable tennis to this point of the event. Sabalenka yet to drop a set, another straight set, two and three victory for her over Barbara Krechikova. You look for Sabalenka now overall in this event. She has dropped just 16 games, 16 games in 10 sets of tennis. 16 games in 10 sets of tennis. She's got three bagels on her resume, and no one's played a set with her closer than 6-3, including a Barbara Krechikova, who in making this quarterfinal is now back up to number 10 in the live rankings for now. Chin Wen knocking on the door, uh, and if Chin Wen wins, she will surpass her. But 16 games, like 3-2, and two, this match was, there was one moment, not where this match was in doubt, where, but where maybe you thought to yourself, oh, is Krechikova going to make a little push here? Are we going to see a comeback with her back pushed against the wall? This is someone who had overcome a set deficit in three of her first four matches. We kind of got used to this recipe. She did slowly but surely seem to be calibrating the weapons, the plus one depth, the return of serve more than anything. The first set, she was almost helpless against the Sabalenka serve. Second set, things got a little bit better, but here is the moment. 4-3, Sabalenka serving. Up a break, by the way, but only a single break. 4-3, she's serving 15-30. Huge serve out wide. Inside in, plus one forehand for a winner. Sabalenka's back to 30-all. She lets out a roar. In my head, that's when I knew the match was over. It was that simple. The confidence to go for that ball with the tenacity and pace that she did. Again, over the highest portion of the net inside in, the big rip with the serve out wide. It was just combinations like that. There was nothing Krechikova could do. She was always on her back foot. And again, I hate to use this analogy repetitively, beat this drum. You Cracked Rackets fans know what's coming next. It's Serena Williams' power tennis country club tennis. Um, it's just the elite of the elite. It's I don't care what you're doing with your racket. I am imposing my will upon you. And to most of the, to some extent, you don't really have a say in how this match goes. And that's how Arena Sabalenka played, not just against the number nine seed in this event in the quarters, but that's how she's played all event long. That's how she's played all season long. That's how she's played for six consecutive majors. And I mentioned this earlier. Arena Sabalenka now has made the semifinals of six consecutive major events. Six consecutive major events. By the way, with this win, she's now 8-0 overall in her career in quarterfinals at the majors. Six consecutive. Here's the list of players that have done that before turning age 26 in the women's game. Because it's an elite list. Chris Everett, 
Steffi Graf, Monica Sellis, Martina Hingis, Serena Williams. You're, you're missing Martina Navratilova, but those are five of the six best players we have in women's tennis history. Maybe, again, Navratilova aside, those are five of the top six, just straight up. Everett, Graf, Sellis, Hingis, Serena, Sabalenka. That's a list of six. By the way, I'm just going to float this out there. I bet Iga makes that a list of seven before she turns 26 years old. That's the first time Arena Sabalenka has been on a list like that. Like, yeah, obviously she's had a lot of success over the course of these past five years, really throughout the course of her career. The talent was so evident immediately. Serena Williams Tennis, a Power Tennis Country Club was a bit we invented here at Cracked Rackets to try and find a place for Arena Sabalenka moving forward and how we knew she was special I have looked at a lot of stats. Again, Iga, fourth youngest to four major titles, things like that where you sort of see kind of immediately, okay, she's on a really special path. This is the first one of those for Sabalenka. Six straight major semifinals. She joins again. Everett, Sellis, Serena, Hingis, and Graf. Do I need to say any more like about the level of tennis she's now played for 17 months consecutively and just again there was I, I hate to be this simple there was nothing Krechikova could do Krechikova had success at times like was decent on the first serve she was four of 20 on the second serve because Sabalenka was just ripping and ripping freely Sabalenka 20 winners in this match Krechikova hit six like Krechikova 24 unforced errors to Sabalenka's 13 you shouldn't have, unless your name's Iga Sviantek or Elena Rabakina or maybe Coco Goff, we shouldn't count unforced errors for you against Arena Sabalenka because to some extent, everything is forced because if you're not gripping and ripping, Sabalenka's just crushing you right now. She is playing elite tennis. Her level right now, like again, I would need to see her best versus Iga's best to know whose best level is the best right now. That's how well Sabalenka is playing. That's what, again, continues to make the fact that Rabakina beat her in Brisbane so remarkable because I know this has just been six minutes of gushing. She has been untouchable. And it's the moment the ball comes off her racket. Obviously, the first serve that it's constantly around 115, 120, that stands out to the eyes, but so does the return of serve. So does the first forehand. So does the first backhand. So does the backhand return. So does the forehand return. So does the cross court. So does the down the line. So does her speed for someone that powerful. So does her volley. She's an exceptional. This is a former slam winning doubles player. Like, Arena Sablanka's skill set is really well rounded. And of course, what ties it all together is the relentless aggression. And there's just a consistency to it. Now, I'm not really sure how anyone other than Iga or the uh, Rabakina matching that level of power tennis. I don't know how anyone beats her right now with the, the level she is playing. All due respect to Coco Goff. Sablanka's best has just been the best in Melbourne in this women's singles draw, and it hasn't been particularly, uh, and it's been particularly clear. Eighth semifinal for her at the majors. Again, six in a row for Sabalenka. It's the first time since 2012 that we get a U.S. Open final rematch at the Australian Open. Uh, at uh, Excuse me, 2011, not 2012. Kleister's Zivanareva had a rematch that year. Goff Sabalenka, the first since then. I mean, again, like... 
It's a really fun match. It's not. It, what is surprising, excuse me, to me is that Coco Goff's the favorite. I know she's had more success more broadly. She beat Sabalenka in the U.S. Open fi- uh, final last year, thirty-one and four since the end of Wimbledon. But the weapons, like the eye test, I, I, Goff is one of three players. It's Sviantek, Goff, Krejcikova, top fifteen in both hold and break percentage. For what it's worth, Sabalenka one of seven, top twenty in both hold and break percentage amongst top one hundred players. But it's an eye test thing. Like I just watch her play. What what could Krejcikova do? What could any of these people do when you are on the full stretch? Because Sabalenka's laced another ball down the line. Like. I just don't know. Krejcikova didn't serve great. She hit her spots. Like, it just didn't matter because Sabalenka's returning that confidently and her power just overwhelms you. So it's Sabalenka's tournament to lose. Like, she is playing that well. Here's the problem. Whenever you've said it's someone's tournament to lose in this event, they have lost in the subsequent round. Obviously, a loss for her to Coco Goff. It would sting because I think Sabalenka thinks she is the best player in the world. And the reason I say that is not as a diss, but I think that's the standard she holds herself to. Goff would be disappointed by the loss. But again, this, the tennis Sabalenka is playing right now is breathtaking in a way that I think you can just be like, look, that's the power tennis. That's who we're all chasing, at least to start this season. This level we're seeing from Sabalenka. Dominant in a straight set victory. Again, if you're Krejcikova... First quarterfinal in quite some time for her. I think it was since the 2022 Australian Open at the Majors. She's back up again to number 10 right now in the live rankings. Never played her best tennis from start to finish in a match. And yet again, three come from behind victories after a disappointing Adelaide loss to, by the way, a player in Callan Sky who's still alive in this event, so less disappointing with time. Again, if you're Krejcikova, you come out of this thinking, oh, man, we really are all chasing Sabalenka. I just got a test of it. I got to look at it. I got to find a way to solve that problem moving forward. Otherwise, again, I'm going to be chasing all season long. Krejcikova, excellent, sets up the blockbuster semifinal bout. Sabalenka, Coco Golf will have that one for us on day number 12. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. It's going to be really fun. And yet again, you could argue it's the second best semifinal we saw produced on day number 10 is now we get the Djokovic Sinner matchup that's been on everyone's schedule since Sinner beat Djokovic at the tour finals. Djokovic responds by beating Sinner in the tour finals final. How does Sinner respond? Well, they play at Davis Cup the next week and Sinner beats Djokovic to help lead Italy to the Davis Cup title. I mean, and now we get to see them play at the first major semifinal event here. Second career semifinal, obviously, for Sinner. 10 millionth career semifinal for Novak Djokovic. Let's talk about how they got here first before we revel in the fact that we do get to see the matchup happen. You look for Novak Djokovic. He was pushed in a way that, with all due respect to, you know, some of his earlier opponents in this event. I know Prismich took him to four. Popperin took him to four. Both of those matches, three hours plus. Taylor Fritz played well enough to go two sets to love up on Novak Djokovic. Now, Djokovic also played well enough to go two sets to love up on Fritz. But I've never seen Taylor Fritz move as well as he did for the first two and a half hours of that match. An 80-plus minute first set, 70-minute plus second set. Djokovic, who, I think, what was it? A 9-10, 11-deuce game right out the gates in game number one of the match for Taylor Fritz. He holds 4-1 love. It's a clean sheet on serve pretty much the rest of the way. Fritz ultimately, uh, Djokovic get to that breaker where 
Djokovic just a little bit too precise, a little bit too disciplined, a little bit too patient, a little bit too good at when there was a short ball, getting Fritz stretched in an elite weight in the outer thirds in a way, by the way, he kind of had to get stretched throughout the course of this match. Um, it was really impressive stuff from both. Again, at, at other times, though, there were times when Taylor Fritz was in the outer third, slapping forehand winners. The fact that you look for Taylor Fritz in this match, he fought off 17 of 21 break points he faced against the greatest returner in men's tennis history. 17 of 21. And when he got that opening hold again, he lost the match ultimately, but it was very clear. Was he going to win the match by holding in that opening game? No, he was not. If he got broken there, this match goes 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. Like, you really felt like it was that significant for Fritz to get over that sort of mental hurdle immediately. And look, Taylor was very clear in the post-match press conference. Hey, like... I, I played really well in this match. I only played really well for two and a half hours, but those first two sets, I played Novak equally, and now I just got to figure out how to sustain that for five hours. It was a very honest, candid, blunt response, fresh off the court of his assessment. Taylor Fritz, a guy who's always been very candid and I think very intelligent in his assessments of the sport. Anytime you've had the chance to speak with him, I think he was right, like... He was serving well enough, not winning free points, but creating plus one opportunities to keep Novak on his back foot to prevent Novak from, again, easily stepping up, ripping back. So the the most clear-cut example, 5-6 opening set, 15-40. Djokovic is down set points after having 17,000 break points in that opening set. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, my God, is Fritz going to escape with the opening set? Two, I don't want to say easy, but very much routine service locations, and in the case of that 15-40 point, a very routine, decisive, but routine plus-one backhand cross-court winner. Uh, Djokovic was able to hit that gear and turn that on whenever he needed to, and he needed to it for, with frequency throughout the course of this match. Djokovic ultimately able, able to win 82% of his first serve points, saves four of the six break points that he faced, perhaps most encouragingly. He had 20 aces to Fritz's 16 Djokovic amped things up in sets number three. Sets number four started being a little bit more aggressive earlier in the rallies. Also, Fritz started leaving things far more short. Like if, when you could get Fritz in the outer third now it, instead of an on-the-run pass with decisive drive on it, or not on-the-run pass, but on-the-run shot with decisive drive on it, it became on-the-stretch slices that were floated and gave Novak an opportunity to get his momentum moving forward into the court. He took advantage of that opportunity whenever it presented itself, sets two, sets three, really decisive. Again, he pulled away in those sets. Djokovic, 52 winners against 26 unforced errors throughout the course of the match, but Credit, you know, again, credit to Fritz, 63 winners against 39 unforced uh, errors. This was the best I have ever seen Taylor Fritz volley needed to do so to fight off many of those 17 break points. He was able to fight off 19 of 29 at the net. That's about as good as you're going to see at the net from Taylor Fritz. Did everything you need to do to beat Djokovic through two sets of play. He said it perfectly. He wasn't able to extend beyond the two-and-a-half-hour threshold necessary sustaining that level to do so. But that's the best I've ever seen the 26-year-old American play. And coming off of a match where I thought it was the biggest win of his career and prior to this match, these first two sets against Djokovic, the best I'd ever seen him play uh, at a major, that match against Tsitsipas, his four-set round four win. 
Yes, he now, again, another loss for Djokovic, against Djokovic. Fritz remains winless. This was a massive positive. This was a massive step forward. Belief that, okay, the level is there. The fitness is not. If I can get myself fitter and more confident in my ability to sustain that my new level moving forward, I like where my level is. I like where my tennis is. The way is, again, the pace he's able to produce off both wings. I really liked his patience in attacking the Djokovic backhand. And when I say attack the Djokovic backhand, not attacking it for errors, but hoping that something eventually might be left short, which at times might be the case because, look, Fritz has the rally tolerance on that backhand wing. Fritz has maybe even more pace than Novak Djokovic on that backhand wing, even if the steadiness and the defensive abilities of Djokovic on that backhand wing unmatched, obviously, arguably, if not clearly, the best backhand we have in tennis history. Fritz is really good as well. And his patience in attacking that wing, his discipline in yanking the forehand cross, but doing so in an aggressive fashion to open up a down-the-line angle to kind of, again, try and draw something short out of the backhand wing, something easy to attack behind. I liked everything Taylor Fritz did. He just wasn't able to sustain it for the four or five hours you need to beat Novak Djokovic at a major. And look, maybe Taylor Fritz will never be able to do that. Maybe the clock runs out on Djokovic, though, and by the time it does, Fritz is able to sustain this level for three and a half hours, four hours. Might that be enough against someone who's not the greatest of all time? Maybe. This was an encouraging result. Again, for a guy who dealt with some injuries in the offseason, Taylor Fritz progressively got better in every match he played this first month of Australia, from United Cup all the way through to this Djokovic loss in the quarterfinals. Another guy I was worried might be plateauing. I just wondered, like, again, he's been 8 through 12 now for a couple of years. Is this just the zone he belongs in? Is there another gear for him to get to? You watch this result, which, again, his second straight quarterfinal at a hard court major. Maybe there is another gear to get to. Maybe not knocking on the door of Tier 1 or being a staple of Tier 1 where he's beaten guys like Djokovic, and not just one of them, but beating a Djokovic and Alcaraz and Medvedev in the same event. Maybe not that. But can he beat one of those guys on the right day, at the right major, at the right time, on the right surface? Maybe. I'm not willing to close that door on that question yet for Taylor Fritz. And again, 26 years old, that's, I think, a good thing to say. You look for Fritz again, back-to-back major quarterfinals for him. And the big thing, again, the top 10 victory over Stefano Tsitsipas. You look for Fritz now coming out of Australia. He is up three spots back into the top 10, back up to number nine in the live rankings. On the Djokovic side of things, I mean, what is there to say? It's his 48th career semifinal at the major. It's the 11th time he's made the semifinals in Australia. And oh, by the way, every time prior, he's made the Australian Open semis. How's that gone for him? Oh, he's gone on to win the freaking event. 9-0 and in Grand Slam semis since the start of 2021. And here's the most ridiculous stat. You look for Novak at the majors since the start of 2021. The guy is 70-3. and 70-3 and three overall at the majors since the start of 2021. He has played 11 different major events during that time span. He's made at least the semifinal round of 10 of them. He's made at least the finals of nine of them, and he's won titles at seven of them. And by the way, he's done all of this in his mid to late 30s. Just a quick Djokovic stat for all of you. Again, all of these stats courtesy of our friends at Opta Ace with uh, this victory over uh 
Taylor Fritz, Novak Djokovic joins Roger Federer as the only players in ATP Tour history to earn 700 hardcourt wins in the ATP during the Open era. 700 hardcourt wins alone. 99% of pro players who have ever played, maybe even higher than that number, have never hit 700 victories. Djokovic hit 700 wins on hard courts alone. Djokovic also surpassing Federer, his 15th top 20 win at a slam since turning 35 most ever in the rankings era since 1973. It's a 33rd straight win in Australia for Djokovic. He equals Monica Seles for the most consecutive wins at the event in singles main draw history. The stats write themselves. Greatest of all time, and the guy's 36 years old. Again, the, the thing I keep pointing to, not the 73 and 70 and 3 record in the majors since 2021. No, it's the fact that in 2024, at 36, turning 37 years old, you feel like Novak Djokovic is more likely to win four majors this season than he is to win zero. How he does it, it's like look how many licks to the center of the Tootsie Pop. The world may never know. Djokovic threw to another semifinal where, again, the blockbuster matchup is set up. He's going to face Yannick Sinner as Sinner does his part yet to drop a set. Another straight set victory. This time it's over his toughest opponent to date. Straight set win over Andre Rublev. A match that, while extraordinarily competitive... Never really in doubt. A 6-4-7-6-6-3 win for Sinner. Yannick Sinner in this match fighting off all eight break points that he faced. Yannick Sinner since the start of the season holding 97.2% of the time uh, through the matches that he's played. But here's the bigger number. Yannick Sinner since the start of Wimbledon. 37-5 and five overall. 37-5. and five. He's holding serve 90.8% of the time. Just for reference, when you are over 90%, you're talking prime Isner, prime Kyrgios, prime Federer. Those are the three players I have ever seen sustain an over 90% hold percentage. Again, you're holding serve nine out of every 10 service games. Those are the only three guys I've ever seen sustain it for a full season. Yannick Sinner hasn't done it for a full season. He's holding 90.8% of the time for six months consecutively. And here's what he's doing that those other guys, including Federer, didn't. He's also breaking serve 27.5% of the time. That's a top 10 number amongst top 100 players against ATP, uh, amongst top 100 players on the ATP tour. And it speaks to just his power tennis works everywhere. He's just better than just about everyone at everything now. And you saw that in this match against Andre Rublev. Sure, Rublev served. His forehand combination were good. Sinners were better. Sure, Rublev's gotten more consistent on the backhand wing. He's comfortable driving that ball with depth. Sinners better at it. Sure, Rublev's become a better volleyer, more comfortable in seeking out those opportunities to move forward and in doing so as well. Sinner's just better at it. Just Yannick Sinner, that's the crazy part. And uh, Andre Rublev is five in the world. And Yannick Sinner was better than him at everything last night. Yannick Sinner went unbroken. He fought off all eight break points that he faced throughout the course of last night's match. I mean, again, every stat's going to point in his direction, obviously. Yannick Sinner, 34 winners against 24 unforced errors. Rublev wasn't bad last night, by the way, either. 34 winners against 32 unforced errors. Rublev made 70% of his first serves. Both guys had 10 aces. 
Both guys won 76% of their first serve points. What's the biggest difference? And it honestly came down to this 11-point spread. Yannick Sinner, 22 of 42 on second serve points. He won 52% of them. Rublev, 11 of 30. He won 37% of them. By the way, he made 70% of his first serve points of his first serves in this match. So it's not as though he didn't minimize the opportunity for Sinner to get cleaner looks on the return of serve, and yet any time Yannick Sinner got a look at a second serve, he pounced. It's how he was able to capitalize. In the games where he got his two breaks, he faced at least two points, uh, two points that went to the second serve in each of those games. The margins were that thin. Again, Rublev was good. Sinner was just better. Rublev's forehand had success. Sinner's forehand had more success. Like I, I hate to make it be this blunt or this simplistic in my analysis and not say, oh, you know, Sinner did a great job of serving to the Rublev backhand hip. And I will say, and this is a game plan you have to employ on Andre Rublev. You have to go into the belly of the beast. You have to be willing to go into his deuce side, into his forehand wing. Because once you go into that deuce side, once you get him parked on that deuce side of the court, now you open up the opportunity to attack his backhand corner, force him to hit that on the run, try and get him to pop something up short. Sinner has the weapons to do that confidently. Sinner knows, okay, I'm going to go into your forehand wing. You may connect on one. I'm going to connect on one better. And the biggest moment in this match, of course, Yannick Sinner goes down 5-1 in that second set breaker. You feel like, oh, okay, 5-1, double mini break deficit, but Sinner was serving at 1-5. You think to yourself, all right, like, Rublev is playing well enough to have won this second set. Neither guy is breaking serve. Rublev has had a few chances. Like, he deserves to win, not deserves to win this set, but him winning this set doesn't fall outside the bounds of what's gone on so far in this match. It makes sense. It's been extraordinarily competitive. One set apiece heading into the turn. Nope, not the case. Yannick Sinner wins six straight points in that second set. A combination of deft serving, bold returning, a brilliant four. They have this long exchange that ends in this ridiculous, Ridiculous Yannick Sinner forehand cross-court winner where, again, he goes into that Rublev forehand belly of the beast. Rublev yanks him wide outside the alley. Sinner takes advantage of the space created to him, finds this ridiculous angle. you got to bring out the protractor to measure. Rips a winner there on his way to, again, six consecutive points to end that breaker. He takes it 7-5. That's when you knew, again, 7-6 in the breaker. Two sets to love lead. This match is over for Yannick Sinner, and it's a massive milestone. Second career semifinal at the majors, the first coming, of course, at Wimbledon last year. He is now 14-3 and on hard courts against top 10 opponents over his last 52 weeks. Let me say that again. 14-3 and on hard courts against top 10 opponents for a year stretch now. Sin Man's the real deal. He's yet to drop a set in this 2024 season, and we'll turn the Opta Ace well one more time to end today's show. You look for Yannick Sinner, what he's accomplished in reaching this semifinal. Yannick Sinner now in making the semifinals. Uh, aside from the big three, Yannick Sinner's the third player, so he's, so he's the sixth player. You can include the big three. Sixth player since 2000 to reach the semifinals of the Australian Open without dropping a set. That list of players, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Andy Murray, Tomas Burdich, Yannick Sinner. If the worst case scenario is your career turns into Burdich, you're making a couple of major finals, you don't have to work a second job in your career if you're Yannick Sinner moving forward. 
I mean, again, like, I fourteen and three against top ten opponents speaks for itself, and obviously the record more broadly during this stretch of time to be to have to be thirty seven and five over a six month period on the ATP tour to be ten and two during top ten opponents during that stretch of time as well, and seventeen and four against the top twenty. He's beating the best that this game has to offer, and he's done it consistently now for six months. That's what an elevation into Tier 1 looks like. That's the part of the conversation Yannick Sinner just belongs in moving forward. And he has done his part. Again, both he and Djokovic do their part to set up the blockbuster semifinal matchup we all wanted. Look, on the flip side, it is worth noting. I got to, you know, again, offer you. I try to be glass half full as often as possible, but I got to give you the full side of every story. Yannick, uh, Andre Rublev with this loss, by the way. 0-10 now in Grand Slam quarterfinals. He's the first male player in the open era to lose his first 10 quarterfinals. Second overall after Manuela Maleva. Uh, this one ranks a little bit differently because Yannick Sinner is playing that well. Now, if the question you want to ask of Andre Rublev, is he a Tier 1 guy after a 10th consecutive quarterfinal loss? He's not a Tier 1 guy. That's not a new piece of information. Is he a tier two guy? The guy who's going to, you know, every tier one guy or guy who wants to approach tier one has to overcome to try and capture a big title. And is he always going to hold seed, be around in the biggest stages of the biggest events? Absolutely. He's a top eight guy, not a top 10, a top eight guy who will continue to be seen in tour finals and continue to get to compete amongst the best of the best, which are the peers and standards he holds himself to. I mean, again, the win over Demon Hour was so exceptional that I think it is a little bit of medicine and swallowing this bitter pill that is a straight set quarterfinal loss, a 10th consecutive. But I think you, if you're Andre Rublev, you come out of this month of the season feeling pretty good about your level, grind your way through the ugly Sabathfield match. Now you, then you get the five set come from behind victory against a hostile crowd in Demon Hour. You won a title in Hong Kong to start the season as well. You're sitting right now five in the rankings. If Zverev wins his quarterfinal, even then he won't surpass you. Zverev's got to make a run to the final to overcome Rublev in that number five spot. I think if you're Andre Rublev, you're feeling pretty good about his first month. I'd probably say B+, plus, maybe even an A- minus if you factor in the scale of that Demon Hour win, but certainly no lower than a B+. Plus. He wins a title. He makes the quarterfinals. At the very least, he is holding seed once again, showing the same level we have seen from him now for half a decade, which is him being a top-eight guy. But again, the lead is clear. Sinner, Djokovic, the rematch we all deserve I got plenty of time to go rewatch the film, talk to you again. What are the specific tactical things? I thought Sinner was willing to go into the belly of the beast of that Djokovic forehand. I thought Sinner, more than anything, though, actually played with steadiness through the Djokovic backhand in their three encounters to wait for a short ball to emerge to open up the court for himself. And again, to think the tactic is go after the Djokovic backhand is a ludicrous thing for any person who watches this sport to say out loud. So I want to go back and rewatch the film to make sure my initial inclination and memory is correct. But Sinner versus Djokovic. Djokovic right now a 51.3% favorite against, according to Tennis Abstract. These two men, whomever wins, will be the favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, in the final. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. Now the fun really starts again. Sabalenka Goff, Djokovic Sinner. Those are the semifinals we were dealt on day number 10. If t- day number 11 even gives us half 
that sort of excitement, it's something for us to all enjoy as we approach the business end of the year's first major. And of course, moving forward, all of our content going to be housed here on our mini break podcast feed. I'll have a preview podcast up for all of you listeners a little bit later as we break down the semifinal women's matches. Now, the problem is I just don't know what those matches are right now. We still got a day to play. So again, as soon as we see that Kalinskaya Jung Chin Wen match, that Naskova Yastremska match, we'll have a preview podcast out previewing date number 12 uh, for all of you listeners. In the meantime, of course, go check out our other content, whether it's covering the college tennis world, the challenger circuit, or everything else happening right now in the tennis universe. You can see it all across our various podcasts. Make sure you like, rate, subscribe, review, not just this show, but the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, as well uh, as our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of editing job he does day in day out making all of our content possible uh thank you to you as well for tuning in and a thank you to our friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what to say hey that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow thanks everyone <laughs>